Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. This is the story of Solomon and his bride's wedding night, and we'll work through this over two Sunday evenings together. And this is the portion of Song of Solomon that has led at times to hesitation to preach this book, and to be fair, a hesitation to listen to the preaching of this book. You might have noticed that this morning I said that we were going to preach tonight on Christian living, which is true. I just couldn't bring myself to say we're going to talk about a man and woman's honeymoon uh, tonight. Somebody might have said, well, I don't want to come hear that. But there is quite a bit of hesitation to preach this book. I'm just curious, uh, for my own curiosity, before this series, how many of you have sat through a preaching series on all of Song of Solomon? How many of you here? Am I it? Uh, Okay, there's one over there. We don't preach this. There's a hesitation to preach it. There's a hesitation to listen to it. This hesitation has also led, in, in my estimation, at least as a contributing factor, at least to the allegorical or metaphorical emphasis on Song of Solomon by theologians, even though we've demonstrated very clearly in our introductory messages that this book is, is a book about human marriage. And in a world and a society that's been so ravaged and devastated by sexual immorality, and in the church, in which sometimes the so-called answer to sexual immorality has been to vilify and to be suspect of sexuality of any kind, reading a Bible chapter about a husband looking upon his mostly unclothed wife on their honeymoon, it's a little bit unnerving for us. This morning, we talked about the glories of Christ and the coming kingdom and the cross. And and it almost seems like a a step down to say, we're going to really talk about a honeymoon. Or on the other side, and just as bad, when believers take all their cues from human sexuality from from the world, and they don't know what the Word of God says, and they begin toying with letting Satan's system set their standards instead of Scripture. There are mass quantities of sexual deviation in our world. That hasn't been everyone's experience. But there are even other subtle ways that hesitance and fear has entered into the conversation. Again, the fear of sexual sin has often caused a legalistic response that says, if I just disparage and hate all things sexual, then I won't be part of sexual sin. And so we come up with purely external solutions to simply avoid all the things having to do with intimacy at any level whatsoever. And that problem then arises when this viewpoint is now brought into a marriage. And that marriage suffers because marital closeness is seen, if many were honest, as a duty to get over with. Something that we reluctantly agree that God has commanded. It's necessary to have children, but it's kind of like getting a shot. You just kind of get it over with. But then the intended purpose of this unique God-ordained facet of marriage gets lost. And the wonder of retaining at least some sense of the Garden of Eden gets shuffled to the bottom of the deck, so to speak. And so the waters of, of intimacy in marriage can be filled with mud and terror even for some. Or at least at some level be filled with hesitation or, or even painful memories. But the healing salve to all of those factors, which are all a result of sin on someone's part, the healing salve is to take in the fresh air of the singular and glorious picture of intimacy that God has given in peeling back the layers of hurt, the layers of pain, the layers of anguish, the layers of regret and guilt associated with sexual sin. And like every other pain which is inflicted either by our own sin or the sin of others, the healing and restoration comes from taking a long, cool drink of the crystal clear waters of the Scriptures to see the truth in all of its glory and let the horror of the perversion of God's truth fade away by taking in the very words of God. There is no other way to work through the difficulties involved with sexual sin, involved with even trauma, and even the resulting sin from this pain and trauma. There is no other way except for the gospel of Jesus Christ and taking in these great gulps of this water of the word. I've done enough counseling over the years to be very well aware that maybe even for some of you here, 
as we come to Song of Solomon 4, the story of the wedding night of Solomon and Shulamith, I'm very well aware that many of you may be bringing baggage of your own. Sexual sin on your own part or sexual sin on the part of others or even just mixed and erroneous messages that maybe you've heard about human sexuality throughout your life. It's a very scarring thing. And so we first of all remember that the cross of Jesus Christ covers every sin and that we are clean in him. But I just want to start with three truths to remember before we dive into this text. The first truth is that every word in this chapter was written by God. These are just as much the words of God as John 3.16 or Genesis 1.1. These are no less the very words of God. The second truth to remember is that the only way to have a proper view of anything is to be saturated in God's truth. That's the only way. The only way to have a proper view of anything is to be saturated in God's truth and marital intimacy is no exception. Uh, Avoiding the subject only creates pain later. And please trust me on this. When you bathe in truth, the dirt gets washed away. And the third truth to remember is that 2 Timothy 3.16 is still true. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in what? In righteousness, in living your life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. I've read and heard many sermons on Song of Solomon chapter 4. I have not yet heard one that doesn't introduce a pretty large dose of a tone of an attitude of silliness into the chapter. And, And certainly silliness and fun enter into your private time with your spouse. That's altogether normal. That's altogether good. God made us this way. But the tone of this chapter is anything but silly, anything but giggly. And if I could dare to say this, it is holy in nature. It's holy because God presents at the deepest, most intimate level what he intended in the first place for marriage to be. So when I read chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1, the words that come to my mind are words like worshipful and awe-inspiring and convicting and humbling and joyful and abundant and unconditional and mysterious. So tonight we'll consider chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. We'll derive some important principles. Next time we'll consider chapter 4 verse 9 through chapter 5 verse 1 and derive some more principles. These are the very words of the creator of the universe. These are the very words of God. Solomon here is speaking to Shulamith as they are now in the privacy of the bedroom after their glorious wedding scene at the end of chapter 3. We're going to read the entire wedding night text, but just consider verses 1 through 8 tonight and then continue next time. So follow along with me. We'll read all of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors." Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Lebanon. 
A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. And then the bride says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And Solomon I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. We're going to walk briefly through some of these images that might kind of escape our understanding as those who didn't live in Solomon's time. And then we'll enumerate some principles that we can derive from this text. And we'll spend about half our time on each of those. First of all, let's walk briefly through some of the key elements of chapter 4, 1 through 8. They're not difficult to understand, but they are, there are some cultural and word picture bridges for us to cross to help us get into the mind of this couple who lived 3,000 years ago. Solomon and Shulamith are together and Solomon is wisely taking his time. And notice what's happening first. Before they consummate their marriage, they're talking. They're talking. And Solomon is giving tremendous verbal assurances to Shulamith of his love. This isn't Solomon's description of a generic woman who simply fulfills his selfish, lustful desires. Rather, this is his view of one special individual, one person like none other, the one that he loves. And he describes his view of Shulamith in in one way, as a scholar points out, quote, in an honesty of expression and detail of observation which places the desire within a loving respect for the woman. He assures her with the poetic bookends of verse 1 and verse 7. In both places, he says, you are beautiful. And so I'd like to show you a progression, and it might be a surprising progression, That is, that sexual union is not the final goal. Emotional union is. That's the final goal. Here's a simple outline as I explain the text. First, Solomon desires his bride visually. Second, Solomon desires his bride physically. And third, Solomon desires his bride emotionally. That's really the high point. First of all, Solomon desires his bride visually. This would have been night number one after day number one of a wedding ceremony that would go for a week and probably more for a king. Now remember that potentially Solomon hasn't seen Shulamith for months until she sent word to him that she was ready to marry and he sent his carriage from uh, up to the north in southern Lebanon to fetch her. And now he sees her. In in verse 1 he says, Behold, this is what's called in, in Hebrew an interjection. It's, just a, it's a way of getting the attention of the listener. We might say, hey, it's something to get the attention of the one listening. In this case, it's Shulamith. Immediately, he connects his view of her, her beauty with his love for her. It's not just lust of the eyes. It's love. He says, you are beautiful, my love. This isn't just the lustful compliment of a man who just wants sexual satisfaction. His attraction to her is connected to his affection for her. The two go together. And he says it twice in verse 1 just to make his point. And then he tells her, your eyes are doves behind your veil. You notice where true love begins. It's at the soul level. They're looking into each other's eyes. This is a, a mysterious and a wondrous form of communication. He says your eyes are like doves. He could be simply speaking of the beauty of her eyes. But we would note that the last time he spoke of her as a dove and her eyes as doves, it had to do with her reluctance and her reticence like a dove that hides in the cleft of the rock. We saw that in chapter 2. And so there may be a sense in which he is making her comfortable. What is her veil? It might not have actually been covering her face as we picture a wedding veil, but more of a a soft or silky hood that would partially conceal the face and the eyes. 
Basically, what is he describing here? He's describing uh, her wedding night attire. That she is wearing something that is, that is revealing and yet inviting. Now we get to a part, we can sort of understand your eyes or doves behind your veil. And we say, oh, that's romantic. That, that makes sense to us. But then you get to the leaping goats. And that doesn't make as much sense to us. And so lest we think he's insulting her by calling her hair a flock of goats, this picture is speaking specifically of dark-colored goats that are very typical to that region coming down off a mountain, a specific mountain, in fact, the slopes of Gilead. And from a distance, they would look like dark waterfalls and waves coming down. Translation, she curled her hair. She curled her hair for the wedding and for the wedding night And the implication is that she's waving her head a bit so that her hair is highlighted in how it moves. In other words, she's letting what the New Testament calls her glory, her hair, flow freely. And so, ladies, on your wedding day, if you say, I want four hours to do my hair, you say, it's in the Bible. I can do that. Not only is her hair flowing freely, we see in verse 2, she's smiling broadly at her husband. A wife's smile is so important. It's an indicator of acceptance, of invitation, of openness. In verse 2, Solomon has continued on with the metaphor of flocks. He transitions from a flock of goats to a flock of sheep. Her teeth are like sets of twins. Not one has lost its young, meaning she still has all of her teeth and they're still white. That she's young. Now, you might think that... uh, Solomon just stepped on a a landmine there, and before you tell your bride, I love your teeth. For Shulamith, this would have been an important statement. It's a statement of youthfulness and a statement of fertility, her ability to have a child. And Solomon hints at this with his metaphor to her teeth being like twins born to use, born to a, a female sheep. And once again, before you start comparing your spouse to goats and sheep, For Solomon and Shulamith, these are images that evoke pictures of peace and tranquility, the pastoral setting of the countryside. It's what they knew. It's what they were familiar with. It's what they both had grown up with. It's what brought pleasure to their mind. He continues on with his visual desire. In verse 3, he compares her lips to a scarlet thread and says that her mouth is lovely. Now, the scarlet thread, this might be a bit misleading to us. It doesn't mean that she has threadbare or thin lips. That's not what he's saying. It just refers to a cord that's not as thick or as strong as a rope, that there's substance to them. But the main focus here is the color. She has scarlet red lips. Believe it or not, there are numbers of scholars that have written a lot about whether these are naturally red lips or makeup for red lips. It doesn't matter. We do know this, that makeup to redden lips has been used for thousands of years. And when we look ahead to see that he says the appearance of her cheeks as a pomegranate slice, this lends evidence toward makeup. So once again, ladies, if you say I want an hour to do my makeup before the wedding, that's in the Bible. So you can say that's okay. But this is one of the most interesting parts of this entire text here. He says that her mouth is lovely. Her mouth is lovely. Lovely is just a word that means pleasing, suitable. The form of her mouth is is pretty. It's shapely to him. But here's what's so interesting. This description of her mouth comes essentially in the, in the middle of, the, of his descriptions. And grammatically in Hebrew, it's short and it's succinct. And in the poetic structure of these verses, the effect in Hebrew is to stop the reader short. And on top of that, this is a unique word for mouth that's used only here in the entire Old Testament. It, it's a word that means to speak. It's related to what she says. And he might be referring in a special way to her mouth as the place where her words of love come out. We've already shown that that's very important in Song of Solomon. But the most obvious interpretation here is that by the grammatical stopping short and by using a a completely different word that's normally used for the mouth, this is the effect. Solomon is saying, if I could make this brief, your eyes, your hair, your teeth, your lips, your mouth. That's the effect. We're not told why exactly, but we get a hint. Verse 11, he says, Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. 
So for him, this is, this is a high moment. This is important. This is, this is a, the, the place where if we think about all the way back in chapter 1, what's the very first thing that Shulamith says to us in this poem? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. What he's saying is, and it's very likely in this culture, that he's never kissed her one time. And he knows he's about to. Very thrilling for him. Then he continues and he compares her cheeks to the halves or a slice in Hebrew of a pomegranate. Now, why the pomegranate? Well, the main feature color-wise is that the pomegranate has two different colors. They're either yellow and red or red and darker red. And this is, again, lends itself to a high likelihood that she's wearing makeup of some sort. But more importantly, for the second time now, we get again to a picture that for Shulamith would convey fertility, convey life. That the pomegranate is a symbol of life. In the ancient Near East, why would the pomegranate be a symbol of life? Because it's a fruit filled with seeds. And it's a symbol of coming life. On the surface, it may refer to makeup. At a deeper level, though, this is symbolic of life, of fertility, that he's anticipating with her beauty that they would make life together. And so for the second time, he values her as the future mother of children. Solomon has valued her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her cheeks, all focused on the face, the image of God, so to speak, the most personal part of her, the, most, the part most reflective of their love together. And we know this instinctively, don't we? In the most tender moments of, of our marriages, and put it this way, in moments of pain where we need each other intensely, you don't say to your spouse, I just need to stare at your foot for a while. No, we look in each other's faces. It's our, our identity. But I want you to notice something after that little list I just gave you, the eyes, the hair, the teeth, and so forth. He doesn't start with overtly sexual things. That's not where he begins. He's appreciating her as a person, as his wife, not just as an object of sexual satisfaction. But now he begins desiring her visually and moving downward. Once again, be careful before you tell your wife, your neck looks like a huge building with rocks and shields on it. Verse 4, your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. We don't know specifically what the Tower of David is, but it's assumed that this is a reference to a once mighty watchtower of some sort that was built out of stones and perhaps even being an armory of some sort where there are warrior shields hanging off the edge. Uh, This is not a commentary that she has a really long neck. The focus is on the shields and there's no need to overly complicate this. She's wearing a necklace made of many round overlapping discs probably gold or silver or both. What's the purpose of the necklace? The necklace was meant to draw the eye further downward. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. This is a respectful picture of grace and of beauty. This isn't just a man drooling with lust. This is a man who loves this woman and, and combined with the picture of fawns grazing in the lilies, Again, we have a picture for the third time now of reproduction, a picture of the life-giving ability of the woman. This is God's design. This part of a woman's body not only draws a man to create life with her, but also sustains that new life upon the birth of an infant. So his visual desire is expressed, but now you get a sense of anticipation. You get a sense of acceleration because now after having desired his bride visually, he desires her physically. Verse 6, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's making an obvious reference to her body from verse 5. This is his speech of desire for her. He expresses his delight in her body using the images of perfumes and spices previously used in the poem. Now, I want want you to notice something here. All of Song of Solomon is a very, very condensed version of this love story. So don't assume that Solomon made this little six-verse speech thus far just to get this over with and to get to his real goal. 
if all of Song of Solomon can be uh, extrapolated into a much longer story, we can easily assume then that he took his time, that he made her comfortable. He assured her of his true devotion and his love for her. But he immediately connects his physical desire to his love. Verse 7, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You notice his attraction to her, his view of her as flawless, is tied to his love for her. Attraction without love is just lust. It's lust of the flesh. In fact, at the end of our time together, in just a little bit, I'm going to prove to you that the central feature of Song of Solomon is not sexuality. The central feature is love that marital intimacy simply represents. So Solomon desires his bride visually. He desires his bride physically. Now, most importantly, he desires his bride emotionally. Verse 8. He desires her emotionally. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Now, sometimes you have to, when you're interpreting a text of Scripture, you have to eliminate what it can't mean. And what this can't mean is that he's calling her to leave her home in Lebanon. She's already done that. She's already left when she came to him in the carriage that was sent for her, as we saw in chapter 3. But what we can do is read between the lines. He's describing mountains, some of which reach over 10,000 feet in elevation, something that's unattainable, something that's out of reach. And on top of that, she is, as it were, guarded by lions and by leopards, as it should be with a young unmarried woman. I got to tell you, fathers of daughters love this verse. The, the image of lions and leopards circling around their girls, ready to tear apart any man who comes anywhere near her. That's right. But Solomon now says, you have once been inaccessible in your home. Come to my home. Leave behind the lions and the leopards which guarded you. In other words, He's inviting her now to make a move toward him, to lose any last inhibition and to give herself fully to their new life together beginning that night. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word bride appears in this verse for the very first time in Song of Solomon. That They are now one. Solomon desires for his wife to be with him and who is there in every sense, especially emotionally. This new couple cannot possibly experience true intimacy if her emotional focus is still back home. It's now time to fulfill Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Solomon's desire for Shulamith is all-encompassing. He wants all of her. He rightly wants her entire focus to be on them, on the what we might call the us-ness of their relationship. This is a right desire for both of them. That the entire attention is on this moment and this moment alone. Both husbands and wives are are so tremendously hurt when the other isn't emotionally present. When one senses the reluctance, the reticence of the other. And of course, this is most obviously diagnosed in these intimate settings. Because when one isn't emotionally present, the other senses this quite easily through their intimate time. It's easy to see. What a complete picture of their love. Solomon desires Shulamith visually, physically, and emotionally. From these eight verses, we can derive some important principles for marriage. And I I can't emphasize this enough. Song of Solomon is about marriage. It's about marital love. And it features prominently the physical and spiritual and emotional component of intimacy together because that's a massively important part of marriage. The two are tied inextricably together. Marital sexuality and love, we're not forced to make a choice between one or the other. The two are woven together. In fact, in in counseling circles, that's always a, a big question. Is love and sex the same thing? In marriage, you don't make a distinction. They're they're together. They they are they're one. And I'd like to extract four principles from our text tonight, and I'm going to borrow briefly from part of chapter 5 as well. We'll do more next time. 
And if you are one of those couples doing these as assignments, consider this your assignment to talk through these four principles we're going to go through. The first one we'll call the principle of holiness. The principle of holiness. I would remind all of us that these words we read this evening are the very words of God, the holy and perfect one. They're the words of God Almighty. Our God is a father who teaches his children what holy marriage and sexuality is, and his view is perfectly positive, it's perfectly holy. The pleasure intended for sexual intimacy is part of God's plan. It's his physical and emotional and spiritual invention. And because there's a certain mystery to it, like the holiness of God himself, this gift is not to be taken lightly. In fact, here's a a little logical syllogism. A syllogism is just two facts that combine to form a conclusion. Here are the two facts, the syllogism. God is holy in all he does. God invented marital intimacy. And if those two things are true, God is holy in all he does. God invented marital intimacy. The logical conclusion is God's invention of marital intimacy is holy. It's holy. Now, obviously, we live in a sinful world where our bodies change and the expression of this intimacy is not the same all the time. And even in different stages of life, adjustments have to be made. But one thing remains constant. Marital love is an act of rejoicing in the other person. I think about Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Solomon advises the man who's been married for a long time to remain faithful and, quote, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then, in fact, he goes on to describe the same exact level of openness and commitment to the intimate relationship as when they were younger, to the point of telling the husband that he should be drunk with desire for his wife. Of many years. Why? Because this is a holy God ordained relationship. It is a holy God ordained union. I don't like jokes about older married couples that have moved on from being excited about one another because they're not biblical. The biblical admonition is that that remains a constant. I've noticed over the years that even in the church of Jesus Christ, it seems at times to be acceptable to tear down marriage. Women complaining about their husbands, husbands complaining about their wives, and it almost seems to be culturally acceptable. My question would be then, why did you marry him in the first place? Why did you marry her in the first place? Years ago, when we first started Bible Training Institute, we used to meet on Friday evenings and we had small groups for applied theology and my wife, Sylvia, was leading one of those groups and, and she would not let any woman complain about her husband. She shut it down because it's wrong. What you have in marriage is a holy union. Notice I did not say a perfect union. It's a holy union. Your marriage is holy. It's set apart. It's sacred. It's mysterious like God himself. We treat it as such. And when various aspects of your marriage become dusty and obsolete because of neglect and lowered priorities, important, holy things like talking and enjoying one another, and yes, the regular prioritized romantic pursuit of one another, then the holiness begins to fade. The specialness is forgotten. That's exactly what Satan wants. My goal in my marriage is is we want to run across the finish line. We don't want to just crawl haphazardly and say well i guess we made it so how do you treat your marriage as if it's holy sacred set apart that brings us to our second principle we'll call this the principle of uplifting the principle of uplifting chapter 4 verse 7 again you are altogether beautiful my love there's no flaw in you solomon says there is no flaw in you we already know that's not technically true We know from chapter 1 that this is not the case. She complained that she'd been toasted by the sun because her brothers made her work out in the fields for too long. But his beholding of her beauty is based in love and closeness and a bond at a spiritual level. This isn't age-specific. And yes, we all age and our faces and our bodies change. But as I mentioned, Solomon tells an older man in Proverbs 5 to be drunk with love for his wife and for her body. 
And so love drives attraction. Love drives intimacy. There's never a place to tear down or criticize your spouse's physical appearance. It's a statement that is precisely opposite of this principle. It says, I would love you more if you looked different. Imagine putting that in marriage vows. I'll love you as long as you look pretty good. How shallow, how selfish, how base. Obviously, it's fine to want to look our best, but love can't be based on appearance. For example, we've said before that marriage is meant to a certain degree to be a return to the Garden of Eden. That Adam and Eve were, according to Genesis 2.25, naked and not ashamed. But when shame enters into the marriage because one or both have a worldly and a shallow and a selfish view of the other, this is a threat to the joy and the unity and the, the oneness of marriage. Could I prove to you from all of your own experiences that true beauty is based in love? When you've been away from somebody you love deeply for a long period of time, the first sight of them is beautiful to you, isn't it? We weep and we cry at being reunited with, with the one we love and appearance doesn't enter into the equation. It's love that makes them beautiful. Tearing down the other's appearance is a slippery slope of emotional and spiritual damage to a marriage. But this is part of the bigger principle of uplifting. Because uplifting begins in your heart. How you choose to think about the other. Why is it that almost all of the counseling I've ever done as a pastor is marriage counseling? I'll tell you why. Because things that are sinful have entered into the mind of spouses such that they despise this person that they supposedly love more than anybody else. In the classic description of true love in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says in verse 7 that love believes all things. The idea is that love thinks on and believes the very best. A truly loving marriage begins in the mind that you choose to think lovingly and delightfully of the other. And in fact, the habit of cultivating, denigrating, and critical thoughts about the other leads to the sin of bitterness, which ultimately comes out in verbal cutdowns and quarreling and horrible habits such as using guilt trips to manipulate the other person subtle insults direct insults cutting the other person down to others and it all starts in the mind but if you discipline your mind to believe the best about your spouse he will become more handsome than ever she will become more beautiful than ever a number of years ago I was in the home of a man of God, a shepherd of God's flock that I deeply admire, I deeply respect. We had dinner together and his wife was serving dessert and he made a joke about her appearance. You could have cut the discomfort in that room with a knife. I couldn't look him in the eye. She took it well because she's gracious, but it was obvious she was used to it. That hurt me and that disappointed me. Did you notice the artistry of Solomon in verses 1 through 8? He actually, guys, take notes, thought about his words. He took time to express his thoughts about Shulamith. He focused only on the positive I, I know, guys, you're not all born poets. I understand that. For some of you, the biggest words you know are Home Depot. And that's it. But the Bible gives you words. You know what you can say? You can say, honey, let me read to you from Song of Solomon chapter 4. This is how I feel. If you know in your heart that you're prone to cultivating negative, self-righteous thoughts about your spouse... This is undoubtedly coming out in how you speak to and speak about your spouse. Instead, I want to encourage you to determine to pick one day and practice only thinking the best and then practice verbalizing those things. And when you're successful, then you thank the Lord for that and you do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. Abide by the principle of uplifting. There's a third principle. We'll call this the principle of giving. The principle of giving, we'll sneak down to chapter 5, verse 1, just for a moment. When the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem, are, are poetically wishing the new couple well. 
In a traditional Jewish wedding, I know this is far from our thinking, but in a traditional Jewish wedding, a bedroom chamber was set up right near where the celebration was after the first night of the wedding feast. And now this is after that first night and the the wedding guests, the daughters of Jerusalem, give the new couple a toast, as it were. At the end of verse 5, the others in your Bible say, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I just want to draw your attention to one thing, the plural, friends. This is not a disgusting group of perverted men congratulating Solomon on having conquered a woman sexually. This is a wish for both of them to enjoy and literally be intoxicated with their love together. I love doing weddings. I love those moments. I, I'm so privileged to get to be a part of that. There's one, wed- one part of a wedding, though, that I wish I could be transported Star Trek style out of the room for just a moment. And that's the moment when I say, you may kiss the bride and I'm 18 inches away. Because they're intoxicated with love and it's spilling on me and I don't want any part of it. (laughs) But that's what the others are saying here. Be drunk with love. God designed the male and female bodies so differently that to have a happy and fulfilled marriage, each must learn about the other and be giving. This necessarily involves learning, which never stops because life changes. It involves communicating. It means being willing to listen and to grow and to learn. In fact, later in their marriage, as we'll see in Song of Solomon as we progress through the book, Shulamith is going to issue an invitation to Solomon after they've been married for quite some time. She invites him to spend time with her out in the country and to spend time with her intimately. And she tells him that she has pleasures, quote, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. In other words, I have some surprises and I'm not going to tell you what they are. That's romantic. And of course, we could extrapolate the principle that this goes both ways as well. How is it that she could have new things for him? Because she knows him. She knows what pleases him. And again, this goes both ways. But this principle of giving intimately is really just a mirror to the bigger spiritual principle, isn't it? It's a living illustration of your marriage, giving to one another and thinking of the other and not just yourself. It's the principle that Paul gave in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your marriage ought to be characterized by sacrificial giving, that your marriage isn't a scoreboard in which you're trying to always keep things even. True love doesn't keep score. Giving is the only true secret to contentment in marriage because it's completely in your control. Misery comes when you keep wishing for and believing that your happiness rests on things that are out of your control, i.e. the things your spouse does. You can't control that. It's been such a blessing to me to, over the years of getting to do some counseling, and I think of one couple in particular, an older couple, have been married over 40 years, and they were absolutely miserable. And as I got to know them over time, I saw the reason for their misery, because this man married Satan. And she was as wicked a woman as I have ever seen, utterly selfish, unsaved, thought she was saved, but completely not in Christ, is totally unregenerate. He was recently saved at the age of about 60 and didn't know what to do. He could do nothing to please her. Nothing was ever good enough. And and we made no progress whatsoever until he finally became convinced that the one thing he could control was how giving he is and how loving he is, regardless of the response. You know, you know how radically she changed after that? Not a bit. Nothing in her changed. You know who did change? He did. He was happy. He was content. He was joyful. Because he was walking as the Lord would have him to walk. One more principle. The fourth principle. The principle of safeguarding. The principle of safeguarding. The intimate relationship of marriage acts as a safeguard, a maintaining of oneness and emotional unity together. God not only invented human sexuality for the context of marriage, but he warns against ignoring this aspect of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, as 
that is one flesh, neither has the right to, as Paul puts it, deprive one another. That right is not ours. To neglect this oneness is just playing with fire. And as Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it gives Satan an opportunity to inflict damage, to inflict chaos on your marriage. Ignoring the importance of the intimate life of your marriage, it's like having a brand new alarm system installed in your house and then you never turn it on. The intruders are free to come in. This has a negative impact on both husband and wife. And it can be very different. For husbands, it may make them feel like their wives don't care about them with their regularly regularly resurging desire and physical, emotional need. It can feel like they're living in a restaurant in which food is rarely served. For wives, this lack of priority can make them feel not loved or cherished, not feel desired by the person that she loves more than anybody on earth. And for both of them, and and it's so subtle and gradual that you don't really see it over time, there's a subtle eroding away of the oneness and the unity and, and the gradual settling into more of a roommate relationship but certainly the intimate life of the marriage isn't the only safeguard it's a major safeguard to be certain but it's not the only one there are many dangers to your marriage dangers which threaten to upend your marriage as your highest priority relationship here are just a few dangers that all should be aware of i'll just make a little list of things to safeguard your marriage from safeguard your marriage from yourself Safeguard your marriage from yourself. Sinful habits, such as ignoring God's command to wives to submit to your husbands and husbands to live with your wives in an understanding manner. That's how the engine of marriage works. Sinful habits, such as a sharp tongue that uses guilt or criticism or or reviling as verbal abuse to, to attempt to control the other person. Can I put it this way? If you're wondering how to fix your marriage, look in the mirror and say, you are my biggest enemy. It's you. So how do you safeguard your marriage from yourself? Well, you have a genuine, heartfelt, and real pursuit of righteousness, of holiness. And if you have the courage, many don't, but I hope you do, if you have the courage, having conversations with your spouse in which you ask and receive humbly the answer to this question, what are the most glaring sin patterns in my life that most threaten our unity and closeness? Safeguard your marriage from yourself. How about this one? Safeguard your marriage from others. From others. We live in a culture in which there are a thousand good things to do which eat your time away. But we pick a few great things to do. Time is like a toddler. If you don't control it, it will control you. Those are the only two options. You have to fight for time with your spouse. You have to make it a habitual priority Your calendar is the safeguard to your unity. This includes, as we'll talk about next time, making sure your calendar reflects the priority of of intimacy as well. This is pleasing to the Lord and he will bless a life that's properly prioritized. You should also protect, safeguard your marriage from your children. From your children. Don't we find it ironic that your children are the product of your love and then they become the very mechanism to drive it apart? This can be as subtle as the busyness of raising a family, eroding away the oneness and the priority of marriage, or it can be as overt and obvious as one parent flat out making the kids a higher priority than the marriage. I've had wives tell me to my face, my children are more important than my husband. My response is, then you're in sin. That's sinful. Let me put it to you this way. Your children are loaned to you by God for a time. Your spouse is a lifetime one flesh relationship. Don't confuse the two. And even if small children especially seem to be conspiring to keep you apart, and even if larger children get disgusted by the fact that their parents are attracted to one another, ignore them and make your marriage a priority because long after the kids or out of the home, you still have your marriage. And it actually creates a very unhealthy, damaging family dynamic when the marriage is clearly not the first priority. I've seen this more times than I care to remember. Generally speaking, it's a man who's given up. He's waved the white flag because he knows that his children are more important to his wife than he is. That she's much more mother than wife. 
What else do you safeguard the marriage from? Safeguard the marriage from outside stressors. From outside stressors. There will always be stress in life. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody in a couple or, or a married couple together say, once this time of stress is over, then we'll pay attention to our marriage. It's the other way around. You need to pay attention to your marriage because this time of stress is here. Your marriage is here to stay. And this really is a very spiritual issue. It's an issue of trusting the Lord, of maintaining and having a loving walk with Christ such that you can say to the Lord, Lord, I know that we're stretched, for example, financially right now. And that's all I can think about. But tonight, by your grace, my focus is my marriage to enjoy the sweetness of our love together. This is the spirit of what Jesus said in Matthew 6.34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And by the way, I love this particular verse because in Greek, what Jesus says here, do not be anxious about tomorrow, it's not expressed as a command, it's expressed as a wish. I really want you to not be anxious about tomorrow. Translation, enjoy your life today. And how about this one? Safeguard your marriage from career. From career. I mean, men, what's the point of a successful career if the person that you started it with isn't there physically or emotionally to share it with you? What's the point? Who cares? And ladies, beware, beware, beware of the lie from Satan that you have a you can have a, a complete fulfilling career, especially if you're ignoring your children and your family to do so and still be 100% available to your husband and your, and your children. That's not possible. It's not reality. God did not create you to find fulfillment in the same way men do. In very rare cases, God calls some to singleness and that's fine, but in the vast majority of cases, your family and your service to others is how God created you to find ultimate fulfillment. Well, I hope you've seen That the principle of holiness, the principle of uplifting, the principle of giving, the principle of safeguarding, these aren't just part of the intimate life of the marriage, but part of the whole marriage. They're intertwined inseparably. I'd like to impose upon your patience just for a minute. I told you that at the end of our time together, I would prove to you that the central feature of Song of Solomon is not sexuality. I think that's one of the misnomers that, create, that leads people to be hesitant to, to engage with this book. It's not sexuality. The central feature is the love that marital intimacy represents. Now, I want you to follow me into the weeds of some details for just a minute so that I can prove this to you. And you're, you're good at this, so I trust you. You'll recall from our introductory messages on Song of Solomon that the Bible often uses a structural technique called chiasm. A chiastic structure is when the text of Scripture is built like a mirror image. That the theme of the first part mirrors the theme of the last part. The theme of the second part mirrors the the theme of the second to last part and so on. And this, in most cases, points you towards the center. The center theme, which often tells the reader what's most important, what the major focus is. And you'll recall we showed that Song of Solomon is a Holy Spirit-inspired set of layers of chiastic structure that goes three deep. That the overall structure is one large chiastic structure. Each element of that structure is also chiastic in nature. And each part of each element is also chiastic in nature. Now this is right about when the average listener says, Who cares? You should care because that's the key to understanding this book. Listen carefully. I'm going to keep this as basic as I can. The whole book can be divided into a chiastic structure of seven major sections. The first three before the wedding day and night and the second three after the wedding day and night. And so the middle section, the wedding day and the wedding night is the central focus. That section is found in chapter 3, verse 6 through the last verse we read, chapter 5, verse 1. That's the center section. That's the focus. That's the culmination. Now, that section of chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1, can also be divided into seven components in which the first three mirror the second three. The first three 
the wedding procession, Solomon's long speech of admiration and Solomon's short speech of desire, the second three from the bottom up, the wedding night, Solomon's second long speech of admiration and Solomon's second short speech of desire. They mirror each other. And the middle component, the focus of that section of chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1, is chapter 4, verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's the high point of Solomon's admiration of Shulamith. But even this one verse is arranged in chiastic fashion in which the outer parts mirror one another. Look, the beginning portion addresses Shulamith. You are. The end addresses Shulamith. In you The second part summarizes his admiration. You are altogether beautiful. The second to last part summarizes his admiration. There is no flaw in you. And as we've worked our way down, literally in Hebrew, to one word. The middle of the verse, which is the middle of the section on the wedding day and night, which is the middle section of the entire verse, the entire book, the laser beam focus of the whole book of Song of Solomon, one word in Hebrew, my love. That's the focus. This is a word which means the woman I cherish. The woman I prefer above all others. The one I treat with partiality. My companion. My friend. Talk about special. This word is used nine times in the Old Testament. Every one of them in Song of Solomon. Every one of them from Solomon to Shulamith. Never in all of the Bible is another woman called this particular word. How would you like, ladies, to be called a wonderful word by your husband that literally nobody in history has ever been called? The central feature of Song of Solomon is the bond of love that Solomon shares with Shulamith. Yes, the initial relationship may have begun with attraction, but the enduring central significance and might of this union is contained in the committed relationship, in their love. Earlier, I gave you a logical syllogism where two facts combine to form a logical conclusion. God is holy in all that he does. God invented marital intimacy. Therefore, God's invention of marital intimacy is holy. Let me give you one more syllogism. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's true. The second part. Song of Solomon gives us God's intentions for marriage that are holy and right. Song of Solomon gives us God's intentions for marriage that are holy and right. Therefore, to embrace God's view of marital love is to live out your faith in the same way that being a godly employee or a godly church member is proving your response to the gospel of Christ. Your response to Song of Solomon is as one who has had his sins forgiven by the grace of God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, your response proves your salvation. Obey the word of Christ out of love for Christ. And what does that mean? We've said this before. I'm not a fan of that saying that says, God's first and wife second, family third. If God is first, then your marriage is first. If God is first, then being a godly employee is first. If marriage is first, then being a godly church member is first. If marriage is first, then being a godly citizen is first. It's all intertwined. And so, believe it or not, you are following Christ, you are pleasing the Lord by pursuing your marriage to make it as wondrous and as mysterious and as delightful as the standard set here in Song of Solomon. And that's my prayer for all of you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this word. It's a beautiful word. The poetry is stunning. The principles are timeless. Lord, I pray that we would, regardless of our marital status, if we could use that phrase, we would see the wonder and the majesty of a holy, eternal word from God. Male and female, he created them. We are made in your image and marriage is really about the ultimate expression of that being made in the image of God. I pray for the marriages represented in our church, Lord, 
that you would bless them with greater unity, greater intimacy, greater love, to honor you, to glorify you. I pray for future marriages in our church, Lord, that you would bring those about. It's pleasing to you. It honors you. Oh, Lord, let us walk in a manner worthy of the, the, the gospel. Let us pursue these mysterious, wondrous relationships. Let us put aside the things that prevent unity and oneness. Let us be humble. Let us be lacking in self-righteousness. Let us be those who easily confess sin. Let us be those who believe the very best. Let us be those who give more than we receive. Let us be those that pursue the love found within the very walls of our own homes. And to do so as if this were the last opportunity. Lord, bless each person listening to this and let their lives change as a result of the truth of your powerful word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.